Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Thursday, August 18th. Derek Van Riper, Al Melchior here talking about players that we have largely ignored on this podcast over the course of this season. And since we were talking about players in a similar light last week, we actually stumbled into Corbin Burns' elevated walk rate. I think it was something that I had started to wonder about after watching him in the last few weeks. Al had this on his mind as well, and he wrote a story about it. And Al, we talked about how Burns, going back to July 1st, had a walk rate that was above 10%, which for good pitchers is actually pretty unusual. It happens sometimes. I think Dylan Cease is a good example of a guy that consistently runs a walk rate in that range. But as you dug in further on Burns, what did you find? Was there anything that caused you significant concern as you tried to project what he would do down the stretch? There definitely was DVR, and we talked about this a little bit. I think maybe it was offline, but in just doing, uh, just doing a leaderboard sort, I was really surprised and maybe even just a little like scandalized to see that Corbin Burns was really uh, high up in terms of putting the pitchers with the lowest first uh, pitch strike rate thrown. Um, and so I, you know, looked at the at the game log and basically, you know, found a. a a time period going back to where he started walking batters more and then did a leaderboard. I believe the date is June 9th where on that date he uh, had a start against the Phillies where he walked four batters. And um, so from that point forward, there is no qualified pitcher who actually has a lower uh, first, first pitch strike rate than Corbin Burns does. So he's been falling behind batters uh, much more frequently than than the typical pitcher has. Charlie Martin, by the way, is not really far behind him. But the difference, and this is something I wrote about in the piece, is that Burns is also kind of a laggard in terms of zone percentage, the, the frequency with which he locates his pitches in the zone, whereas Morton does that at, at a pretty good level. So, um, you know, it's certainly something that maybe makes Charlie Morton a little bit more vulnerable to to walking batters, but he's in the zone enough and getting enough chases as well out of the zone that um, his walk rate is fine. But with Burns, it's you know, it's two out of three. He he still gets a good number of chases, not as many as he was earlier in the season, but he's not pitching in the zone and he's not getting ahead of batters early in the count. And when I dug in further, I'm gonna try to give the the relatively short version of this leaves something for people to read on the site, but um, he as much as his walk rate has been elevated over the last two and a half months. He's actually been sort of lucky, or at least there's something going on there that his um, his walk rate is not as high as uh, as an expected walk rate equation suggests that it should be. Um, so he could be actually walking more batters than he is. And he's getting a ton of ground ball outs, actually has the lowest 
ground ball uh, batting average against um, of, of any pitcher that I looked at over that same uh, two and a half month period by a big margin, by the way, like a, a 30 point advantage over Joe Musgrove, who has the second lowest ground ball batting average against during that span. So there could be a whole lot of negative regression there for Burns in, in that that account. So basically, try to really get to the point here of the story. Burns is kind of skated through. He's, his ERA hasn't changed. His whip hasn't changed, uh, even with all these additional walks. Uh, but he's getting a lot of ground ball outs to make up for it. And at some point, that's going to stop. And if he doesn't start getting ahead of batters, we might be disappointed in what Burns does over the last seven weeks of the season. So... It's interesting because if you go back to 2020, a season that we're usually trying to forget, you can find a range where Burns had a similarly low first strike percentage, and he was very effective in the shortened season, right? That's when this massive turnaround began. We had a 2.11 ERA. It was 12 appearances, 9 starts, you know, 13 Ks per 9. Uh, everything seemed to be pretty good. That was easily the highest walk rate we've seen from over the last three seasons as well. And I think that might have been part of the reason going into 2021 why I wasn't necessarily all in on Burns at the then highest possible price. So it's not something that we're seeing for the first time, but it is something that we didn't see over a full season just because of the way 2020 worked. So I guess having that one little blip when I look at the the longer 10-game rolling average over multi-years for that first strike percentage makes me think there's at least a solid chance that he can right the ship a little bit. I wonder if it is you know, not having the feel of a certain pitch as often as he'd like, and maybe it's a change in sequencing or, or something along those lines. Because when you watch him, the stuff still looks crisp overall. The actual movement on the pitches, the velocity, those things still look really good. But that lack of consistency with the, the command is... It's a concern. It's interesting, too, though. I was looking at the projection you kind of put out there in the story versus what the projection systems spit out there. And it seems like you are making a a harder adjustment a or a more, um, I don't know, a, a sharper adjustment, I guess you'd say, than what the in-season, rest-of-season projections are making. But I'm also, I'm also wondering how much the general projection systems we use even look at first strike percentage specifically as a, an indicator that something could be changing. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing maybe they don't, but also the projection systems are doing what projection systems are designed to do, which is look at the the longer term trend and see, you know, taking into account last season where Burns wasn't walking anybody that short season two years ago where the walk rate is up and, and just finding the middle ground. And yeah, the projection systems all have him in like the seven to eight percent walk range, which definitely, you know, that that's definitely not putting too much weight on on 2021. So wh- when I was projecting for it, I would say in fact it, it it's not really so much projected projection as here's what what could very likely happen if Burns continues on the same trends that he's been on for the last two and a half months. So those projection systems are saying, no, we think he's going to be somewhere between what he's done for the last two and a half months and what he did the two months before that and the season before that and the season before that. So uh, that that makes sense. But in coming to that projection, by the way, you men- mentioned Dylan Cease at the outset. I actually, Cease was the closest comp I could find 
to uh, this two and a half month version of Corbin Burns. So I looked at at his projections as kind of a basic guidepost and tweaked a, a few things where they were different. And that's how I came up with, uh, I think, yeah, 350 ERA, 120 whip. And, you know, I really double, triple checked it because I thought this doesn't seem you know, very generous given what we know Burns is, is capable of. But again, if you hold everything constant from the last two and a half months and you you expect there to be that Babbitt progression, um, that that very easily could be what Burns does over the remainder of the season. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating stuff. People should check out the story. It's called Fantasy Fact Check. Does Corbin Burns' deteriorating walk rate matter? Uh, went up on Wednesday. Dates are hard. Converting dates to days real hard, especially when that day happened to be just yesterday. Uh, let's move on to some names we have not discussed in recent weeks, uh, maybe even recent months in some of these cases. I don't think I ever think about Pablo Lopez because I don't have him on any teams this year, Al. He is just doing well for everyone else. He is not helping me anywhere for the season. He's at a career-high 134 innings already which gives us a pretty harsh reminder of the injury history and probably serves as the, hey, DVR, you might have been right to not draft Pablo Lopez where he was going, given the concerns about him making it through a full season. Um, And I think one of the issues is that he might be starting to tire at this point. You know, the recent trends, especially for Pablo Lopez, are concerning. They are. Um, so his last four starts, he's gone a total of uh, of just 18 innings. Hasn't been effective. He's given up 18 runs, uh, run run per inning. A two whip. Uh, and I think his ERA for much of the season was right around two. So now he's got a whip for the last four starts. That's right at exactly two. Uh, a big dip in the swinging strike rate, 10.6%, which is fine for a lot of pitchers, but that's just way below where Lopez had been at uh, for, for much of the season. And over those 18 innings, 13 strikeouts, five walks, not a, a very impressive ratio uh, on either end. So it's four starts. And I had the same thought you did that. Maybe this is fatigue. It's not showing up in in uh, pitch velocity. It wasn't showing up in, in anything particular that I could find to explain why this is happening. Uh, but it definitely makes it hard to, to trust him uh, for the, the next start or two. And the other, I guess, longer-term concern to keep in mind with Pablo Lopez, that four-seam fastball velocity down about a full mile per hour compared to where it was over the course of last season, too. So going down from 94-1 to 93-1, the margins for error are going to be smaller for him going forward if he doesn't regain that velo. Home park, obviously, still very good. Uh Supporting cast, not very good, but I do think with, with Lopez, it's just health that is the the biggest concern. And then, of course, the quality of, of how he pitches, if he's able to hold up here down the stretch. I hope we see it. I hope we see a career high and in innings uh, continue to pile up and, and get to a level that puts him you know, on the radar as a, another top 100 overall sort of pick as we look ahead to next season. Uh, Kevin Gossman, I think, is worth discussing. I think there was a point... Very early on this season, probably around May on the Athletic Baseball show, where I said, I guess I was wrong about Kevin Gossman. He's been fantastic to start the season. And now I'm starting to wonder if maybe I had it closer to right, a 316 ERA, 127 whip. Those numbers don't normally go together. Normally, if you're sitting with a 127 whip, your ERA is closer to like 3.8, maybe even a 4. The Ks have been there. And this is pretty remarkable. 
Kevin Gossman has the lowest walk rate of his entire career this year, so the skills look really good. Home runs have not been an issue, so the lowest home run rate we've ever seen from him as well. When those two things are right, and the whip is as bad as it's been in any season since 2019, that actually seems like a case where Kevin Gossman has underperformed. He actually deserves better in that category. Yeah, and the reason for that ERA whip mismatch, a 372 BABIP, which is, you know, that just no matter how ineffective a pitcher might be. And Gosman, in many ways, like you said, has been extremely effective. Even if he weren't, you would expect that to improve. Um, so I do, I agree. I mean, it seems like he's probably deserved better. Now on the other side, you know, something that might work against improvement for him is that you mentioned the, the lowest home run rate of his career. And that was something that I know was on my mind back in March. I'm pretty sure we talked about it at some point. But uh, just concerns about the move to Toronto, the move to the AL East, uh, and those numbers that he put up last year with the Giants just not holding up. And uh, again, maybe not in terms of whip, but in terms of everything else. I mean, his numbers have held up really well. And as he shrunk the home run rate, which is exactly the opposite of what a lot of us were expecting. So, you know, I don't know what this does in terms of, of expectations going into next year. But I think for me, the big takeaway is by and large, Kevin Gosman is the same pitcher he was a year ago when so many were concerned that he would be significantly worse uh, with the change of scenery. Yeah, it looks like a miss for me for the season, even though that whip's a tick high, because I I think that's just good luck in my favor to make me look more right or to miss out on less production in the case of Gossman. I would wonder, too, if, if you're trading for a pitcher right now. Some leagues still haven't had their trade deadline. I know that's kind of right around this time of year, depending on when your commissioner actually sets it up. The Jays don't have a bad defense, at least by outs above average. I think they're sixth in outs above average, so that BABIP seems pretty fluky. I wonder if it's just easier to trade for someone at the Gossman level, a notch below Burns, who we talked about earlier, and if you might actually get the same kind of impact in terms of ratios and Ks the rest of the way. It might actually be more of a wash than people would expect, and you you could help your pitching staff without giving up your absolute best possible hitter on your roster to get that deal done. I like that. I, yeah, the, I think that's something something people should be looking into if they've still got their trade deadline ahead of them. Yeah, I'm curious to see, too, if Gossman's ADP actually goes up from where it was here in 2022 or if there's even maybe a slight drop-off just because of where the ratios are likely to end up based on where they're at right now. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk about Zach Wheeler. I remember when we were beginning draft season, there was that news about Wheeler saying he had dealt with some, I think it was tightness or fatigue in his shoulder during the offseason. So it was several months old news, but it still caused a ripple effect on where people were willing to draft him, just given that he had taken a huge workload for the Phillies last year, 213 in the third innings. That was easily a career high coming off the shortened season. That was just a, a Big jump, probably one of the biggest jumps you could find in terms of 2020 to 2021 increases. 
the results have been great over the course of this season for Wheeler. It's only been 132 and two-thirds innings, but a sub-3 ERA, again, a 106 whip, and more than a strikeout per inning. I think he is showing us that the skills that he has uh, kind of put together over the better part now of, geez, let's say four seasons. I think this kind of goes back even further than that. Yeah. This is who he is. Like He he is a more more consistent and more stable starter than I expected him to be, not only in the wake of that injury way back in December, but also just having to deal with Citizens Bank ballpark. That was the other concern I had about Wheeler. It was almost more ballpark than, than workload increase that I was worried about for this year. And that's something that I hadn't really worried about much with Wheeler because one thing that's been consistent in his profile really going going almost all the way back to his rookie season is he's been really good at avoiding hard contact. And I mean, it's not that he's just bad, you know, at, at avoiding contact. He's pretty good at just avoiding contact altogether. But then the contact that he does allow uh, tends to be uh, pretty, you know, relatively soft. And one thing that really surprised me on his fan graphs page, an 8.2% barrel rate. Uh, Cause that's just, I mean, that, that that's not bad. That's average. Uh, but he's always been one of the best at avoiding barrels over over the last several years. And so I took the next step that I always take when I see something like that, which is, well, what's the exit velocity on flies and liners? He's lying. It's the same as it's always been. It's right around 90, which is superb. So I'm not sure what's up with the extra barrels, but it's not affecting his ERA or whip. Uh, it doesn't reflect uh, him giving up actually more hard contact on average. So he really is just the same pitcher he was last season. And that's great news. Yeah, I think it'll push his ADP up a little bit. I think once we learned about that shoulder stuff in March that was several months old, he kind of fell outside of the top 10 among pitchers. That did include a couple of of relievers if you were looking at the ADP from the NFBC the first week of April. Um, but if you said Zach Wheeler's going to go top 30 overall, you know that's probably about a half round earlier that he finished up this past draft season. I think that would make a lot of sense just given the way people – tend to treat aces like this. It is also surprising, though, just thinking about this in the face of what I was saying with Gossman and the defense behind him in Toronto, the Phillies' defense is poor, as expected, like the, as as constructed. And, you know, in the numbers, you see a minus 20 outs above average. So you'd think that there'd be some kind of impact on balls in play for Zach Wheeler. And, well, no, not really. 290 Babbitt this year, 288 last year. I had a 306 in the shortened season, his first in Philly. So for one reason or another, it just doesn't seem like that defense has really been a big issue for him. So maybe it is the quality of the contact that he is allowing. Uh, I don't know. It's a little bit of a mystery. That was the other concern I had aside from the ballpark. I saying, yeah, that defense is pretty bad. So uh, the occasional balls in play might actually pile up and, and work against him. That has not been the case so far. Let's talk about Lance Lynn. For a moment, he was an easy avoid for me back during draft season. Uh, I missed a lot of time with an injury, so I'm not, you know, right for avoiding him because of that. That's it's got nothing to do with it. It's more just looking at him and saying, "What has gone wrong?" It's been 65 and two thirds innings so far. Strikeout rate is down a little bit from where it was last year, but the walk rate has actually never been better. Home runs have been a big issue. This is the worst home run rate Lance Lynn has ever had in his career: 1.78 homers per nine. So as you can imagine, the ratios are a little bit broken, a 562 ERA so far, but a 125 whip. And when you look at the rest of season projections, they point to a high threes ERA for the most part. I think Zips has a 408 on him, only one above four. And 
the whip is right at around 120. The bat's even a little better than that at 117. That's a pretty good pitcher. And if you're looking for someone who is in a pretty good spot matchups-wise, being in the AL Central, I kind of like Lance Lynn as one of your last-ditch trade targets if you're trying to salvage pitching on the relative cheap. Yeah, that's also a great call. Uh, and the, the home run rate is definitely a, a little bit concerning. And unlike with, with Wheeler, where he had that elevated uh, barrel rate that, that didn't really explain anything, uh, it, it's pretty easy to link up that uh, that higher home run ratio for Lynn with um, the highest barrel rate of, of his career and, and by a good margin. So he's given up some hard contact. But also, I think it's really easy to kind of overestimate how bad the season's been for Lance Lynn because he's got a strand rate that's just over 60%, which is just, there's just no explanation other than just really poor luck for that. And if you look at the ERA estimators, both um, XFIP and Sierra see him as like a low threes ERA pitcher. I'm not actually really expecting that from Lance Lynn rest of season, but I'd be happy. I think you could definitely make a deal for him where you could get him, uh, and get the you know three fifty three sixty ERA and and feel like you didn't give up too much to get it. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm at with Lynn right now. It's just funny how it goes from player you really had no interest in back when draft season started to things have fallen apart so much that you actually see an opportunity to go in and, and trade for that player. But that's exactly what has happened with Lynn. Um, Shane Bieber is the guy that we haven't really talked that much about. It felt like he got a lot of attention back during draft season because we weren't really sure what was going to happen as he returned from a major injury a year ago. We're not seeing a strikeout rate at the same levels that we saw between 2019 and 2021, but we're kind of seeing the same guy that Bieber was skills-wise back when he first broke into the league in 2018, right? More like a strikeout per inning guy with great control, uh, keeping the ball in the park, and that's kind of fine, right? I mean, it, it works. Like it's it's just a question of should we trust Bieber from a durability perspective, given the injury that cost him so much time in 2021? Does does this work for us as either a very high end SP two or maybe you know the the cheapest possible of the aces? Is he still at that level for you? I think so. Maybe just more because of the the scarcity of really high quality, durable pitching that we talked so much about back in March. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, for me, Bieber really has come uh, down a notch. Uh, maybe I wouldn't say a couple of notches. I think he is in that wheelhouse, uh, DVR, that you're talking about. Low end ace, uh, high end number two with emphasis, maybe on the high end number two. And, uh, you know, that's something that I don't think anybody was really thinking uh, back in back in March. I don't think anybody was looking at Bieber as a, a number two starter, but the strikeout rate has come down enough that that in combination with the durability concerns, I don't, I think unless something changes radically between now and October, I don't think you can really view Bieber as an ace going into 2023. Uh, like you said, nothing wrong with, uh, with the profile that he's had this year, but um, he'd have to really, he has a, a way to get back to, to where he was the previous three seasons. So it's pretty interesting because when you look at the drop in velo on the four-seamer, that is alarming. 91.1 miles per hour this season, easily the lowest we've seen from him. He peaked in the shortened season at 94.1, even last year before he got hurt, 92.8. So over a mile and a half per hour lost on the four-seamer from just last year to this year. 
but it is still a case where we're talking about two good breaking pitches, command, and he's got a cutter that he's been throwing a little bit more often this year than last as well. So with that reduced velocity, he's not using that four-seamer as much. He's making the adjustment. Um, I wouldn't look at him as an ace either. I, I wonder if we're going to see an overcorrection, though, because of the velo. I think if there's, if there's one thing that really scares the fantasy community away from a pitcher, it is a significant drop in velocity. And I would say in this case, I'm at least entertaining the possibility that he can make it work because command has always been his strength and the depth of the arsenal appears to be good enough for him to work around this. I I don't know where exactly that line gets drawn in terms of where the price is, is good and, and, and fair versus where it's too much. Uh, if we're talking about Bieber as a top 40 top 50 overall pick going into 2023. I'm probably out in that range just to give you a sense of pitchers that were going in that range in, in 2022. That would have been, you know, the Nola range, Sandy Alcantara, Robbie Ray, like that cluster of pitchers was kind of going in the 40 to 50 overall range among starters. And that seems a tick high for Bieber, who, despite going earlier than that this year, has managed to, I think, return enough value. If you drafted Shane Bieber this year, you're not disappointed. You're, you're making it work. Like Things are fine. Maybe you were hoping for a slightly higher K rate, but I don't know, Al. I, I don't know if the price is going to catch up to my expectations or not, just because the results have been good. Yeah, I could definitely see that scenario that you're talking about where a lot of people are focused on the the velocity dip and maybe over overcorrect. Um It'll be be interesting to see. Uh, certainly, you know, come come winter time, where people start start ranking him, because he would have to be about below, like just below the top twelve pitchers coming off the board for me to have a, a chance at, at winding up with him next year. Let's talk about Robbie Ray. Sort of funny that Kevin Gossman comes up in this episode and Robbie Ray does too, because that was a decision that the Blue Jays made and that teams had to make on the open market and free agency. Back during the winter, year one for Robbie Ray in Seattle, almost in the books at 387 ERA, 120 whip, 166 Ks and 142 innings. So not a big drop in, in strikeout rate. Look at the strikeout percentage. It's pretty close to what we saw in the shortened season. Not that far off the typical 31 to 32% range that we get from Ray. I think the key for us with Robbie Ray is that he's kept most of the improved control that we saw a season ago. That was the big question. How sticky was the new walk rate for Robbie Ray? A full season of a 6.7% walk rate was, a, to me, like a truly locked-in new skill. But even within that, there's still a little bit of range for either further improvement or slight regression. And it's been slight regression. So at this point, I can look at these, these underlying skills and say, what you see is what you get, but that's actually really stable. And because the K rate is higher right now with Ray than it is with Bieber, I might be more inclined to draft Robbie Ray ahead of Bieber if the price were equal going into next season. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure, to be honest, how it shakes out. But the fact that they're definitely in the same conversation for me represents a, a change in perception for me. Uh, but... With, you know, getting back to the the walk rate, like you said, just a, a slight increase for Ray. And if we give him the same treatment that we were giving Corbin Burns a moment ago and looking at the, the components of that walk rate, he's actually for the first time in his career uh, throwing the first pitch strike at an above average rate, a really good rate, 64.3%. And 
what we saw last year with that that dramatic decrease in the walk rate, he was getting chases out of the zone. He's always been a pitcher, or at least for several seasons running now, has been a pitcher who's um, who's located out of the zone a lot. And he's increased that too this year from a, a level last year that was by far a career high. So uh, maybe we could even look forward to a, a little bit of a, a return of that lower walk rate last year to, to or what we saw last year. Uh, and again, not that the increase has been a lot this year. So what's kind of interesting to DVR is that, that there's a, there's a, a kind of a flip side to that trend uh, of him walking fewer batters, uh, which is that hitters are going after his pitches much more frequently than they did um, in previous seasons, you know, 2020 and going further back than that. So that's also hurting the strikeout rate because he's just not freezing batters very often at all. That's go- that's a rate that's gone down every year, for four years running. So um, all in all, pretty much, yeah, the same pitcher who won the Cy Young, but just not with the same strand rate luck. And that's, so I think if you just judge him based on the, the peripherals, the, the the strikeout and the walk rates and the the plate discipline profile, he's pretty much the same guy that, that was really good last year. I bet he's going to go somewhere in the 65 to 75 overall range. The ADP might actually fall compared to where it was this season because expectations were just sky high coming off the amazing year that Robbie Ray put together in Toronto. But I think I'm in at that discount because there's there's much more that looks stable and good in that profile than that looks concerning at this point, I like the AL West for pitchers a lot. I mean, if you're if you're on the Astros or on the Mariners and you're only facing one of the two good offenses in the division, you get to face uh, at least an average sort of team in Texas and a couple below average ones in most cases uh, with the way the Angels and, of course, the A's, where those two teams are, are currently built. Got a special segment on this episode. It is trivia sponsored by our friends at Doer. Here's the question. Since the start of the expansion era in 1961, 41 players have hit 30 home runs and stole 30 bases in the same season. Four players have accomplished that feat three or more times. So if you know the answer, email us the first and last name of each of those four players. The first person to answer correctly will receive a prize pack worth up to $247 from our friends at Doer. Email fantasypods at theathletic.com by 11.59 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday, August 18th. No purchase necessary. The winner will be contacted next week. So good luck and have fun with that trivia question. Al, let's move on to some hitters. I traded for Francisco Lindor in NL Labor back in May. And I'm pretty happy with that decision, seeing how it's played out. He was playing well at the time. He's played well in the time since. And it just leads to a simple question. Is Francisco Lindor back to the levels that we saw in 2018, 2019 during the final couple of full seasons that he had in Cleveland? The fantasy stats tell you, yes, uh, he is. And one of the reasons that I really want to talk about Lindor on this episode, I haven't, as far as I can remember, talked about him all season long. I had this impression of him being uh, a notch below where he had been at that peak uh, a few years back. So when I was looking at uh, roto value rankings for hitters, I was really surprised to see Lindor in the top 10. He's number nine overall, number two among shortstops. That just really surprised me um, because the 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 power just isn't there uh, at, at quite the peak level. That's been, that and continues to be uh, in a, at least a slight decline. And the strikeout rate has been creeping up slowly. 
And the one thing that maybe will help me to kind of put the skids on undervaluing him going into next year is that he still is in the, the peak portion of his career chronologically. And there's nothing to say that those trends can't be reversed going into next year. But I do, I don't know. I do feel like it's a little bit of a mirage and maybe just a, a little bit of him benefiting from compiling some counting stats that maybe uh, he won't do at the same level next year. It's it's a little hard for me to figure out exactly why he has been so valuable in 2022. It's interesting just to see the the balance though in the production. I mean, you see it month to month. It's like every month he hits four homers. That's just what he does. Hit five in July, so you got a bonus one that month, but. It's the stolen bases are there consistently. He's been efficient as a base dealer and dealing with City Field, which has been for years one of the more pitcher friendly environments in the league, and and not having that completely tank his power. Nine of his twenty one home runs this season have come at City Field. Like that's kind of encouraging for me too. So uh, I do think he's just he's back at least from a fantasy perspective to that do-everything sort of level. I mean, at his peak, he was a guy that was going in the first round. I don't think he's going to make that kind of move back up the board, but comparing him to where he was going back during draft season, I think Lindor had an ADP of 50 during the first week of April, that last run of NFBC drafts. I would probably push him up at least 15 to 20 spots from there. If he went at the the end of round two, beginning of round three, it really wouldn't be that surprising. I mean, that's where Tim Anderson and, and Trevor Story were going when this season began. So I think our, our current expectations and our future expectations for Lindor are probably around that level, aren't they? I guess so. I, I'm going to have a very hard time ranking and valuing shortstops going into next year because I feel like all I've been saying and, and all most of us have been saying for the last several years is shortstop is so deep, shortstop is so deep. And and part of why Lindor had that lower ADP was just, you know, relative value as we were expecting compared to, uh, you know, Trey Turner, Bo Bichette, Marcus Simeon, Trevor Story, Tim Anderson. Um, and I just think that that order can be very easily jumbled. You know, Xander Bogarts is having a relatively down year, uh, but it, it you know wouldn't take a lot for him to get back to you know where he was previously. And I just think with shortstops being so bunchy, um, it's I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that question. Fair enough. Well, we've got plenty of time to solve it between <laughs> right. uh, now and next draft season. You know, so that's good. We, we can we can break it down over several months. Let's talk about Jose Abreu, which is something I don't think anyone has said all season outside of you know White Sox podcasts and things of that nature. But usually when you go to Jose Abreu's player page, you're not really surprised by anything. And I'm really only surprised by one thing. It's the home run total. 14 home runs through 116 games. I think Jose Abreu is what I would ordinarily describe as a metronome player. He just goes out there and does exactly what he's supposed to do every single season and the variance that you see tends to be the result of the lineup around him. He loses some runs in RBIs some years because the team around him isn't as good or there are injuries or uh, maybe the the timing of the home runs was a little off or something just things that that don't really mean anything. And I'm looking at Abreu, he's 35. I don't think the power is actually down in the sense that uh, he's still hitting the ball hard. His average exit velocity Right in line with previous norms, 92.2 miles per hour. Barrel percentage, 9.3%. 
It's a little lower than the last three years, but it's in the normal range for him. His career, I think, is a 10% barrel rate. So I'm looking at Jose Abreu, and he's also striking out less than ever, and he's walking more than ever, so that's another good sign. I actually think there's going to be an age 36 season bounce back here. I know it's risky to bet on players getting back to previous levels, especially this far past 30. Late 30s in particular is like really dangerous. But I'm expecting that the general fear around a player this old is going to make him as discounted as he's been at any point, probably in the last five draft seasons when we look ahead to 2023. Yeah, absolutely. I could definitely see that coming uh, with Abreu and the fact that the statistical profile is has not really changed that much. People, you know, might go to that uh, aging narrative um, to explain, you know, the fact that he's only got 14 home runs with, um, you know, about a quarter of the season left. Uh, like you mentioned that the strikeout rate, I mean, that's phenomenal that, I mean, he's striking out a lot less than, you know, than he had been previously. I, the one thing I, I just want to throw out there, you mentioned uh, the exit velocity. I wonder if maybe, I didn't look at the average exit velocity on grounders, um, but I did look at flies and liners and it is his lowest average since 2016. So maybe there is a legitimate decrease in power. I just don't think it's on the magnitude that the home run number (laughs) would suggest that it is. So, uh, you know, I think that's a caveat to throw out there that maybe there is the beginning of some power decline, but I think that that is likely to get exaggerated on draft day next year. I think it's possible that he is sort of the new Nelson Cruz, saying that as uh, Abreu, again, ahead of his age 36 season. Because if you look at Nelson Cruz, who's finally looking like he's done this season, finally at age 42, he, he's not able to hit big league pitching well enough to, to have an everyday job anymore. <laughs> From age 36 on, Nelson Cruz had... Four seasons where he hit 30 or more home runs, and he would have probably done it again in 2020. He hit 16 in 53 games that year, so we could probably give him credit for five of five just based on the rate of power he showed during that shortened season. I think this is more like that when we're looking at the late years of Jose Abreu's career. But you're right, if if he's driving the ball into the ground a little more often, that is a sign of overall decline. I just think we're going to get a nice discount. It's going to be a discount worth taking when we look ahead to next season. Maybe another good late-season trade target, though, that wouldn't take that much to get. It could be pretty impactful for you over these final six weeks and change. Let's talk about Alejandro Kirk for a bit. The overall numbers this season look great. A 297 average, a 380 OBP, 448 slugging percentage. Kirk has walked more than he has struck out for his career now. We're talking about 601 plate appearances, a 10.8% K rate against a 10.5% walk rate, 21 home runs in what's basically a full season's worth of plate appearances. Maybe it's a little high because he does catch a lot. What do we make of Kirk at this point? Because it seems like he gets dinged for being just an unusual player, just in terms of his body type, right? I mean, you can imagine that for years as a prospect, it was easy for evaluators to to overlook him because he doesn't fit the mold of what scouts might be looking for. Well, I think, uh, you know, certainly he was, was popular in drafts uh, this year. He'll be, I'm sure, even far more popular next year. And so I think whatever 
you know, negative Im- impression that people have. I think that's that's probably uh, out the window at this point because uh, I, I look at this profile and to me, he's just he's the the this generation's Buster Posey. Um, it just uh, the, like you said, the walking more than he strikes out, uh, decent power, maybe not as much power so far as I was expecting from Kirk, but, and there could be maybe room for that to grow a little bit, still just 23. But if, if he just carries this season forward, he's going to have a Buster Posey like career. And that means he's going to be one of the first catchers taken for a long time. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to to think about it in in that light but it, just in terms of the way he controls the zone the quality of the contact that he makes it's it's not it's not an unrealistic sort of comp and i think we're finally at the point now it took me longer than most people to believe in the playing time being stable i think he's done this long enough now and they've shown a willingness in toronto to give him playing time outside of playing catcher to you know give him the playing time that we need for him to be the maximum impact sort of bat uh, behind the plate. But I would imagine, yeah, he's more expensive going into 2023 than he was in 2022. And that was with plenty of people who really liked him. Uh, how about DJ LeMayhew? There's a guy that it's like, okay, what what do you expect him to be? Another older player, the uh, age 34 season, I guess we'll call it because he turned 34 back in July. It's a 281, 382, 418 line. So the power is Better than it was last year, but still not at that level we saw over the first two seasons he spent with the Yankees. And I'm thinking a lot about uh, opposite field power with the ball this year has been reduced. And that's exactly what DJ LeMayhew brings to the table. It's, it's you know, spraying the ball all over the place, but also taking advantage of the short porch in right field at Yankee Stadium. Where do we go from here with the power for DJ LeMayhew? Is this is this consistently what you're expecting for the next season or two? Yeah, I would say what he has done this year and and last year, uh, of course, like you said, this year being better, uh, I think somewhere in, in that range is what my expectation will be for next year because the first of the two seasons with the Yankees was the, the year of the rabbit ball. And we saw that with a lot of hitter, hitters with um, just moderate power who they, they put up really great numbers that year, and then they went back to who they were afterwards. Uh, LeMahieu didn't do that in 2020, but over a full season, maybe he would have. Uh, plus, he he barely struck out, uh, struck out at fewer than 10% of his plate appearances in 2020. So that maybe helped to pad his power stats a little bit too. Um, so I think, yeah, what you've seen this year is a pretty good guide for for 2023. And the, the playing time has been a little bit more consistent than I was fearing going into the season because uh, it looked like the the Yankees had a, a real log jam in the infield there. And I thought maybe LeMayhew would be sort of the, the odd uh, infielder out of that. Um, so the playing time's been there. He's been able to, you know, compile a lot of stats as a leadoff hitter in a, in a great lineup, even though it's not been great lately. Um, and I would expect more of the same next year. Yeah, I think he's another metronome sort of player. It's just that the ceiling's not as high as it appeared to be a couple of years ago. Not shocking, given that he spent so much time in Colorado and never really unlocked power quite like that. But just a really good player across the board. And the position versatility, always nice to have as well. Uh, Carlos Correa, I think, is worth bringing up because he has that unique contract with the Twins. He can opt out after this season. He can opt out after 2023. I think he'll still opt out, Al, but it's not as certain as you'd think because of missed time again this season. The per-game production looks pretty good, average still in the 270s, 
OBP is still good. He's drawing his walks. Barrel rate's up a little bit from where it was last year. I mean, this is this is kind of your typical Carlos Correa offensive profile, right? So does he choose to opt out and, and end up on another good team somewhere else? I mean, I, I, I think that's what he's going to do, but I can't say it with certainty. I think so, too, uh, because... Yeah, like you said, it's been a pretty typical Carlos Correa type of year on a per game basis. The power's been down uh, a little bit, but he's pretty metronomic too in terms of his year to year production. So I'm, other than maybe just staying healthy for a larger portion, uh, larger portion of the season next year, I'm not sure what would be gained from him staying in Minnesota uh, for for yet another season uh, without uh, testing the market. So. I suppose, uh, you know, Mike, if I had to, to pick, if I had to bet on it, I would guess that he's playing elsewhere next year. But uh, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's a little hard to say. And who knows? Maybe he likes it. Maybe the Twins would tack on another year or two. There's, there's any number of things that could happen. But I just think that missed time, that, that's the recurring problem with Correa. Uh, but he could hit the market again at 28 and maybe cash in with more guaranteed money in the long run than the one he got uh, with the flexible deal with the Twins. Uh, one more name to throw out there on this episode, Kebrian Hayes. I thought throughout the draft season, every time he'd come up on, on rates and barrels, he comes up all the time. People ask questions about him, and I think we do a lot of searches where he, he pops as someone that should take a step forward with power. It has not happened yet, right? It's 103 more games this season, just six home runs, a 358 slugging percentage down even a little bit from where he was last year at 373, but... This slash line looks an awful lot like last year's slash line in a similar sample of playing time. The speed's nice. I mean, getting speed at third base is amazing because many third basemen do not run. So he's 13 for 16 as a base dealer. The thing that's almost concerning to me is that he's hitting the ball in the air more often and not getting better results on the balls in the air. Not not saying that specifically. The exit velocity on flies and liners might be up a little or something. I haven't seen that. But I'm just saying I, I wanted to see him hit the ball in the air more often. And he did that. And I expected to look over to the home run column and see 10 or 12 or 15 home runs right now. And it's still 6 in 434 plate appearances. What's going on with Cabrian Hayes? Is it still wise to be patient with him from a power perspective? Or is it time to start lowering our expectations? Well, for a change, I did not look at uh, average exit velocity and flies and liners, so that's a puzzle I'll have to solve at a later date. But um, you know, my my conclusion maybe it is premature that I've I've drawn on Hayes. Is, uh, he's going to turn twenty six in January, uh, and, and we haven't seen that power develop yet. And part of what makes me feel a little bit impatient about Hayes is that there there was the promise that the power was going to develop as he came up through the, the minor leagues. It didn't happen there, but it's just, well, this is a, a top-notch prospect. It's still going to come. He's young enough, so and so on. And he's almost 26, and it hasn't happened yet. If it had happened in the minor leagues, I might be able to just uh, be a little bit more patient and say, okay, well, we saw it there. He hasn't been in the major leagues for quite that long. Maybe you know it just it's going to take one more season. But at, at this point, I just really am skeptical that that's going to be a part of his game yeah i mean i'm looking at the leaderboard right now average exit velocity on flies and liners 93.4 miles per hour this year which is it's not bad right i mean among quali- average, yeah. qualified hitters it's kind of middle of the pack and last year 93.5 so no actual movement on those even though he's putting the ball in the air more often it's 
It's one of the adjustments, like step one, to hit more home runs, hit the ball in the air more often. Step two, when you hit it in the air, hit it harder. And I I think this is one of the hardest things about playing fantasy baseball. It's probably one of the hardest things about being a scout is projecting that sort of future growth. And, and do you see the ingredients in the profile? Do you see enough things elsewhere to believe that it's still there? I think my reason for still believing that it's possible would be the overall uptick in hard hit rate. If you're still making hard contact and you're hitting the ball in the air more often in general, you could put those things together. 49.2% hard hit rate, that's good. That's a step up from last year. It's not quite what we saw when he debuted back in 2020, that little sample, 95 plate appearances when he had a 55.4% hard hit rate. Maybe that's out of bounds and a level he's not going to sustain in the long run, but just seeing some improvement from last year in that category, seeing a few more walks along the way, and then seeing the ground ball rate coming down, I am clinging to my hope that Brian Hayes can at least get to the 15 home run level. And if he's going to steal bases the way he's stealing bases right now, that works. And then it comes back to where he's hitting in the order, how much better the order gets around him, and what becomes the batting average floor over time. If he's a 255 hitter while doing that, that's a little less exciting than if he's a 270, 280 type hitter. That could be the big difference maker for him, categorically speaking, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's probably a little too early for me to just you know close the book on on Hayes. And when looking at from next year, I probably should you know figure he is still young enough to have have some upside. But I do feel like that window is is closing rapidly. I hope people start to give up on him and we can get him at a discounted <laughs> price in our 2023 drafts. We'd love to have him more as a corner then as a third base option, it would be a great way to get some extra bags on your roster, um, kind of on the, the bottom half of your starting lineup, if that is the case. Uh, as noted earlier, Al's got that piece up about Corbin Burns. If you want to read that, go to theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. Get yourself a subscription for a dollar a month for the first six months. You can also read everything else we've got for real baseball, for fantasy football. Uh, Premier League just started up in the last couple of weeks. Got a lot of great soccer coverage on the site as well. So be sure to check that out. Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. You can find Al on Twitter at LMilkYourBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. As noted last week, no live stream on Friday this week, but we will have the Friday waiver pod. It's going to be Al and Eno doing that. So be sure to check that out as well. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We are back with you on Friday. 